Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, more shortlisted authors for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Coming up... Susanna O'Sullivan on It's All In Your Head and Amy Littrot on The Outrun. Dr. Susanna O'Sullivan has been a consultant in neurology since 2004, first working at the Royal London Hospital and now as a consultant in clinical neurophysiology and neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and for a specialist unit based at the Epilepsy Society. In that role, she has developed an expertise in working with patients with psychogenic disorders alongside her work with those suffering with physical diseases such as epilepsy. Suzanne's first book is It's All in Your Head, True Stories of Imaginary Illness, which has recently been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. Suzanne, thanks for speaking to Little Atoms today. Thank you very much. Give me a brief overview of what It's All in Your Head is about. Yeah, it's really about my experience of working with people who have medically inexplicable disability. So essentially, I started work as a neurologist in 2004, having done many years of training, obviously, And what I really expected to do in my work was to spend most of my time looking after people with brain diseases and epilepsy in particular. What actually transpired was that in the first year of practice, 70% of people that I admitted to hospital with severe uncontrollable seizures didn't have a brain disease. They actually had a condition that we now call dissociative seizures, so seizures that have a psychological or behavioral origin rather than being anything related to epilepsy at all. And just to put that in context, 100 years ago, if I had seen these people, I would have been telling them that they had hysteria or hysterical seizures. So essentially in 2004, I found myself plunged into this situation where I was trained to look after people with neurological diseases, but a huge number of people I was seeing with seizures actually had a psychological or behavioral problem rather than a neurological problem. And what resulted really was a very major learning curve for me. You know, technically, these people were under my care, but they were outside of my field of expertise. And I had to learn very quickly how I was going to manage that situation. And I've spent over 10 years now doing that. And I started out really having struggling to manage some of these conditions. But over time, I just developed a huge respect for the people who suffer in this way. And I've really seen at first hand how neglected they are. These are people with paralysis, seizures, blindness, memory disturbance. And all of this is happening for psychological rather than physical reasons. 
it's a very neglected group of patients and through writing It's All in Your Head, what I've really hoped to do is to really tell their stories so that people can see how much they're suffering, how little respect they're given and how much more we need to direct our resources in their direction. That's a key point. You just said that how little respect they're given because it's obviously a very sensitive area. The last thing a patient wants to hear is that their illness that's obviously been troubling them for ages, it's all in their mind. Why are we so sensitive to that idea, do you think? Well, I think that, you know, it's very obvious. I think if I say to anybody, you know, if you have a work colleague and that work colleague is in a wheelchair and they can't move their legs at all and you believe they're suffering because they have something like multiple sclerosis, for example, you know, I think most people would have sympathy for someone in that situation. If a week later you were told that their leg paralysis was actually psychological in origin rather than due to a brain disease, I believe that most people have an immediate shift in their sympathy for that. I think people regard these sort of disabilities as less serious. So obviously if you find that you go to a neurologist and you're given this diagnosis, you're aware of this public perception and that you're aware that you will face judgment of people who think you're doing it on purpose or you could stop it if you wanted to. So I think that patients rail against the diagnosis very reasonably. I think there's a great stigma attached to this sort of disability because people don't believe it's real. My experience is that it's not only real, but it's actually even more disabling than many brain diseases. Well, if, I mean, obviously, a lot of mental illnesses have a stigma attached to them. But if I was having hallucinations or hearing voices and went to the doctor and and said this and was diagnosed with schizophrenia or something, I would have no problem with understanding that that was something that was going on in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the very nature of this condition is that it's something that's happening in the mind, which is psychological or behavioural but it doesn't feel that way. So you don't experience anxiety or stress or you don't experience psychological symptoms. Instead, you experience physical symptoms. So it's the very nature of the fact that something is psychological is presenting as physical and then you go to a neurologist thinking you have a physical disease and the neurologist is then telling you that you don't. So I think it's the very nature of the way these things present. They are presenting as something they're not and then a patient is faced with something very abrupt, which is that something they're not expecting usually and that really caused them to rail against it. Now there are other things that our body does in an involuntary way so we blush for instance we don't have any control over that when we laugh or we cry there are physiological effects on our body and we all accept those things. Yeah I mean that's what I try to say to people I mean because it's important that I point out that when I'm talking about people who have serious disability for psychological reasons, some people believe that that's quite unusual, rare problem. There's nothing rare about it at all. It's quite common. And in order to try and kind of demystify it for people, I generally try and point out that our bodies are constantly reacting to emotional things. In fact, it's so unbelievably normal that we don't even think about it. You know, so all the common things are obviously blushing. You know, people's hands shake. Most people have had a tremor in their hands in relation to anxiety at some point in their lives. Um, Our voices crack when we're nervous if we have to speak in front of a crowd of people. And these reactions are instantaneous. Also, we have no control over them. So I do think it's very important that if people can recognize that in normal, healthy, sane, intelligent people get these things all the time and that the sort of disorders I'm dealing with are really just an extension of something that happens to everybody. You already mentioned the idea that this would once upon a time have been considered like a hysterical illness. Tell me something about the history of psychosomatic illness. When did we first recognize that it was a thing and how was it treated in the past? Well, I mean, Hippocrates recognized that our bodies responded physically to stress. So we've always known this. 
but it has gone, it's had an interesting trajectory, which is when people believed that it was an entirely emotional problem, then it tends to not be discussed. But when people believe that it's a primarily organic physical problem, then it becomes more popular. So, for example, in the late 19th century in France, a very well-known neurologist called Charcot focused a huge amount of attention on hysteria. He was the first person to study it scientifically. He believed absolutely that it was an organic illness. And during that time, there were huge outbreaks of hysteria because for once people could admit that they had this problem. And that actually made it a popular diagnosis, but based solely on the fact that it was believed to be an organic illness. After Charcot passed away, it was taken over by doctors who believed it was a psychological illness. And then it kind of slunk back into the shadows again, leading people to believe that hysteria had disappeared. So the original use of the word hysteria was not in any way meant to be a derogatory term as we would use it now. It's also obviously extremely important to point out that hysteria refers to the womb and that there were long periods of history when people believed that these kind of problems came from the womb and some women actually had hysterectomies to treat convulsions or hysterectomies to treat all sorts of different medical complaints. So the condition has had a very interesting history, usually strongly influenced by whether people thought it was an organic or a psychological problem at that point in time. And nowadays, bringing us up to date, is this typically an illness of the comfortable West, of the worried well, or is, this a, is it a worldwide thing? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because you would think that this is a, an illness. My impulse would have been to think that this is an illness of the West, but actually there have been very well carried out studies that have looked at this condition in lots of different countries. So comparing places like the States, Germany, with places like um, Nigeria, and it really doesn't matter what sort of health service you have or what sort of economy you have. This is a problem in every sort of country. But there are occasions, though, where psychosomatic illnesses are, if it's the right word, transmitted by the media, by stories. Yeah, absolutely, because these illnesses are, I sort of think of them as illnesses of the imagination to a certain degree, which is not to say they're not real, they're absolutely real, but the idea for the symptoms comes from somewhere, and that comes from the imagination, and what's in the imagination is your life experience, the things you've seen, the things you've read about. So, for example, if people read that there's an outbreak of diarrhea and vomiting as a result of tainted water, as I think there was recently in the UK, well then people may very well begin experiencing symptoms because they're concerned about their own water supply. So it is certainly the case that these things can spread through the concern that is spread by the media, but I don't think that the media is in any way responsible for this. They just have the possibility of shaping it. So we all suffer these kind of psychosomatic symptoms all the time, but they don't usually lead to disability. I don't think the thing the media does is it gives names and through describing the symptoms of other people can influence the pattern. I don't think it influences the volume. I want us to look at some of the case studies. Throughout the book, you use some examples of anonymous examples of people that you've treated in the past or stories that you've come across. Um, before we do that, just give us a general idea about what your approach is nowadays to treating these illnesses. And first of all, an obvious thing about an illness that is to some degree imaginary would be that everybody would experience those illnesses differently, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's the nature of disease, to be honest, rather than just this particular problem. I mean, if you talk to two people with asthma, they'll give you really different descriptions. So, yes, everyone's different. I mean, I think the first approach, the first important point in the approach is to make sure that diagnosis is 
sound. Because obviously, if you go and see a doctor with a pain in your stomach or paralysis in your legs, and the doctor says all the tests are normal and that you potentially have a psychosomatic condition, the first thing you're going to think is, have they missed something? So I always try to approach patients with an absolutely open mind and make sure that they've been properly listened to, examined, and investigated. When those investigations lead to a diagnosis, to my conclusion that they have a psychosomatic disorder, you know, it's really about the way that a diagnosis is delivered is of the most immense importance because a huge number of people have suffered the experience where they have either been told or they feel like they've been told that there's nothing wrong with them or that they're imagining their symptoms or that their symptoms are under their control. So really, that's the first thing I really try to emphasize with patients is this is a real condition. So it's no point in telling someone with seizures that their tests are normal and therefore there's nothing wrong with them. Someone with seizures always has something wrong with them. So it's really about dispelling the common fears in the first instance and just also trying to make people realize that although their illness is absolutely real, very life-destroying at that point, it has the potential to get better. And that's the positive side of this. So once the diagnosis has been made, although it can be incredibly hard work, these people can get better if we can get them the appropriate help. We haven't really talked yet about, in general terms, about what causes psychosomatic illnesses. And in the the examples we're going to look at, there's often examples of emotional distress or trauma. What do we know, if anything, about the link between emotional distress and physical symptoms? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that people who've suffered with serious traumas in their life can sometimes express it as a physical symptom. So I would deal very often with people with very extreme examples of this problem and in particular with people with seizures. And about 30% of people who have dissociative seizures, as we call them now, or um, psychosomatic seizures, have suffered very serious abuse in childhood. And also, people who suffer in this way have had losses or suffered an accident. So that sort of psychological stressor can certainly lead to these sort of disorders. But the thing is that once upon a time, doctors thought that Everybody who had a psychosomatic disorder had suffered that sort of trauma, particularly sexual abuse. And that caused huge problems between doctors and patients because doctors were probing their patients to admit that something awful psychological had happened to them. And patients were telling them honestly that nothing had. So really, although I know that emotional trauma is very important, I don't think it's the only mechanism for this condition now. Sometimes the mechanism is more related to how we interpret our body and how we respond to pains. So, for example, if you've got an injury and you're not used to being injured and you're afraid to walk because your foot was injured, then that can slowly over time produce a disability. So I think some people have suffered psychological traumas and others have not. I'm Alex Kratoski and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, let's stick with seizures to begin the examples then. Let's talk about the example of Camilla, who seemingly out of the blue has a series of violent seizures. What was her story? Yeah, I mean, it was a terribly sad story. Camilla just abruptly began having seizures. And at the time when she had the seizures, there really was no obvious trigger. So she was a very successful woman. She seemed to have it all together, really. She had a family and she had a high-powered job. And then she abruptly began having seizures and everything was threatened. And in the first instance, it really wasn't obvious at all what was causing her seizures. They were confirmed as being uh, related to something psychological because she had seizures during tests and those tests were 
normal. So there's no doubt about the diagnosis, but in the first instance, it wasn't obvious why they had happened. It really only emerged very, very slowly over time that there had been a very serious accident when her own child was under her care. And that child, unfortunately, was hit by a car and the child died. And that was something that obviously Camilla was fully aware of when she came into the hospital. It was not something she'd forgotten or repressed, but rather she couldn't make the emotional connection between the loss that she had and subsequently having the seizures, which was something that happened many years later. And that's really an example of this feeling of dissociation that causes things like seizures. So dissociation is when you get sort of separated from your surroundings. If you, we all dissociate sometimes, for example, if you're watching television or you read a page of a book, you read the whole page, but you don't remember it. That's an example of normal dissociation. But sometimes that can be exaggerated, cause people to really lose touch with the emotions at the heart of their symptoms. And in Camilla's case, result in seizures. Early on in your career, you came across another example, a woman called Yvonne. This is a really fascinating story. Tell us what had happened to her. Yeah, Yvonne suffered a fairly minor accident. And when she was at work, she got cleaning fluid sprayed in her eyes. And 24 hours or so after that accident occurred, Yvonne went completely blind. She was obviously admitted to hospital and had lots of tests. Neurological examination, neurological tests are really sophisticated now, so it was possible to demonstrate that her nerve pathways were completely normal and that her eyes appeared by our test to be functioning normally, so her pupillary responses were normal. But Yvonne couldn't see. Over time, as I got to know her, there was a lot of inconsistencies in Yvonne's behavior. So when I examined Yvonne formally, she couldn't see at all. But when I was with her in a more informal way, just chatting with her, she would make eye contact with me in the same way a sighted person would. Uh, if I met her in a car, she would say hello to me by name before I introduced myself. So Yvonne's behavior seemed to be that of a sighted person. She experienced being profoundly blind. You know, that was cases like that were really, really informative for me as a doctor because in the first instance, when you see that sort of contradictory behavior in a patient, you can't help but think, you know, are they putting it on? Are they lying? Is she pretending to be blind was what went through my mind. I still had sympathy for her because if someone needs to pretend to be blind to get attention, that's still a very serious problem. But it was a real struggle for me to understand the contradiction in her behavior. But I've realized over time with dealing with patients like Yvonne that actually this contradiction behavior, if anything, is absolutely proof of their innocence and their complete lack of insight into their disorder. So I think someone who's trying to fool their doctor, someone who's trying to pretend to be blind, you know, does a, a sort of an exaggerated example of blindness, where Yvonne was incredibly sincere and there was inconsistencies in her vision because that's the nature of this disorder. It almost needs attention focused on it to be maintained. And in distracted moments, people are more able to see, they're just not aware of it. So it's been really instructive for me to meet people like Yvonne because it's allowed me to see this, you know, these people are in a desperate and sincere search for help and we should realise that. And what happened to Yvonne in the end? Well, what happened to Yvonne in the end is that, you know, she ultimately did accept the diagnosis that this visual problem um, was related to something psychological, although she could never fully accept exactly what the factors were that had triggered it. I mean, she did have a difficult relationship with her husband. There was conflict within the family and the blindness did solve some problems within the family. So it's always just speculation, but I would conjecture that that blindness served a certain purpose within the family. It solved problem, it caused one problem, but it solved others. Yvonne, I don't think, ever fully accepted that as an explanation, but she certainly accepted that the blindness was not organic and she 
ultimately made a full recovery. Another example, a young man called Matthew, who's convinced he has MS, multiple sclerosis. He, well, the time you see him, he's in a wheelchair, he's housebound. Tell us about that story. Yeah, again, Matthew's problem began with tingling in a foot, and he couldn't find an explanation for it with his doctor, and he began researching it. And he hit upon this possibility that he could have multiple sclerosis by um, researching on the internet. And, you know, his concern that he had multiple sclerosis really added to his symptoms. So the more he read about the condition, the more he began searching his body for new symptoms. And the more he searched, the more he found. And that really resulted in a very rapid decline until he was significantly disabled and in a wheelchair. And he was really struggling to accept that he didn't have multiple sclerosis because he felt his symptoms fitted perfectly with it. And again, it's it's another good example of the reality of the disability in these conditions because Matthew presented for test after test. When the first scan didn't show evidence of multiple sclerosis, you know, he was desperate for a second scan. That is not the act of someone who's pretending to be disabled in a wheelchair. That's an act of someone who has utter disbelief that their scan is normal and utter disbelief that there's no organic disease to be found. Ultimately, I'm happy to say that Matthew came around to the idea that his problem could actually have a functional or behavioral cause, and he actually made great leaps and bounds and improvements with physiotherapy. So he did get better with time, but it was a struggle for him to accept the diagnosis in the first instance. Now, of course, inevitably, it's not always real. Some people do fake, and you have come across a few over the course of your career. You talk about a patient particularly called Judith. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, the first thing patients with psychosomatic conditions worry about is that everyone will think they're faking their illness. So I will always approach every patient with the assumption that that is not the case. Because if you're disabled and someone accuses you of faking, it really is the worst possible kind of insult to their suffering. So I will always approach people with as open mind as possible. But of course, there will be people who do fake illness. In Judith's case, she had what we call a factitious disorder, which would have been called Munchausen syndrome in the past. And that's where people deliberately feign illness and lie about being ill for medical attention. So Judith told me a story which later proved to be completely untrue, that she had suffered a very serious medical condition in the past, that she had leukemia and that she had had a bone marrow transplant and a variety of other very serious interventions. That All of that proved to be untrue. After I admitted her to the hospital to begin to investigate her, we saw her on camera deliberately injuring herself and having a seizure that had many features to it that were clearly deliberate. But what I think is really, really important to point out is that factitious disorders or Munchausen syndrome are also very serious disorders. So it would be very easy to look at Judith and consider her to be manipulative. And certainly she was manipulating me, attempting to get a certain sort of care for me. But anybody who goes to the extremes that Judith went to, to lie, to present to hospital, to ask for invasive investigations, to deliberately injure herself, just to have someone care for them, is obviously still someone who needs a significant amount of help. And it's worth pointing out that people with Munchausen syndrome or factitious disorders order usually don't recover so it is an extremely serious illness of all the stories in this book i think the example of rachel is probably the one that's most likely to provoke controversy as it's a story of me or chronic fatigue syndrome which is something that's for years has been extremely controversial particularly because there are patient groups sort of patient advocacy groups what has your experience been of that yeah 
I mean, what I really am trying to write about in this book, what I'm really trying to point out to people is that disability that isn't easily explained on tests and disability that's difficult to understand is a very serious problem. It's stigmatized, it's not treated fairly, and it's not given the same research and resources as other sorts of disability. So that really is the point of the book. Now, I found it difficult not to include ME in that because I know that ME is a stigmatized illness that people don't respect. And I think it's a life-destroying illness and it deserves respect. I have had some people very upset because I included ME in a book that um, is about psychosomatic illness. I think that that really is yet another example of how people don't respect people who suffer psychologically. You know, if I saw somebody with motor neuron disease or who thought they had motor neuron disease and I examined them and I discovered they had multiple sclerosis and I changed the diagnosis from one serious disease to another disease, then nobody would get upset and nobody would be outraged at that change of diagnosis. If you change a diagnosis from motor neuron disease into functional weakness or psychosomatic weakness and people are outraged, then it really shows the attitude that people have to psychosomatic illness. It's just another example of the fact that people don't have any respect for people who suffer psychologically with physical symptoms. And I think very much the opposite of what I'm trying to say in the book. What I'm trying to say is that this sort of disability is very serious. And if we paid it just an ounce more attention than we do, we could actually help a lot of the people because it's curable. And that's what's so sad about it is if we gave it the respect and we paid people who suffer in this way the same attention as we pay to those who suffer with disease, we could cure them. But by disrespecting them, a lot of them are going untreated. Just one more question then. What does it mean for you that this book has been nominated for the Welcome Book Prize? Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely, I was absolutely thrilled to be shortlisted. I just, over the moon, personally, I'm very pleased. But I'm also pleased because the subject matter of the book is obviously something which isn't talked about. It is stigmatized. And I think this shortlisting is a real mark of respect for that subject matter. And I'm endlessly appreciative for that. So I've been talking to Susanna O'Sullivan and we've been talking about her book, It's All in Your Head, True Stories of Imaginary Illness, uh, which is out now from Chatter and Windus Books. So Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you very much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Amy Liptrot has published her work with various magazines, journals and blogs and wrote a regular column for Caught by the River, out of which The Outrun, which is her first book, which we're going to be talking about today, emerged. As well as writing for local newspaper Orkney Today and editing the Edinburgh student newspaper, Amy has worked as an artist model, a trampolinist and in a shellfish factory. And The Outrun has recently been shortlisted for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Amy, thanks for talking to Little Atoms today. Hi, my pleasure. Give us a brief description of what The Outrun is about then. Well, it kind of depends what kind of mood I'm in, uh, what I tell people it's about. Sometimes I say it's about the Orkney Islands where I grew up at the north of Scotland on a, on a sheep farm. And it's about life there in particular, wildlife and farming life and life on the, the very smallest islands. So that's one way of, of looking what it's about. But it's also about me. And in particular, a certain period of my life, four or five years ago, when I returned back to Orkney after more than a decade living south and in particular in London, I returned to Orkney just after I got out of rehab in London for treatment of a um, a drink problem. So it's also the narrative that runs through the book is about my own recovery and, and addiction. So, uh, you know, the the genre of the book, in some ways it's a memoir, but also it's a piece of, of nature writing, really, about the islands. Tell us something, first of all, about growing up on Orkney then. So what was the farm like? I grew up on, it's a sort of medium-sized family uh, sheep farm, which is now an organic farm. And it's exposed kind of spot on the on the west coast of Orkney. So um, looking out to the Atlantic, um, sort of edged by cliffs and um, pretty constantly battered by the wind and, and the sea salt. So quite a quite an elemental kind of place. And uh, my mum and dad had uh, mainly sheep, but also some some cows and uh, various animals. I've got one brother. Yeah, and it was a life that, particularly as a teenager, I quite I wanted to to get away from and, and to escape, really. But it kind of wasn't until I returned back there in, in more recent years that I kind of perhaps saw what was attractive and interesting about that lifestyle. And your parents weren't from there, were they? They'd moved. No, my folks are English, and they uh, moved up uh, and bought the farm in the in the late seventies, just a few years before I was born. Um, it's kind of the only place that they could afford to. They sort of wanted to buy a farm, and they ended up there because it was the only place at that time they could afford to buy a farm. And so I was born there. But my parents are English, so I've never quite take claim to being an Orcadian myself, despite having grown up there. And the first scene in the book is basically you arriving on the island and your father being taken away because your father was ill. Yeah. Well, actually, sometimes it's been a bit misinterpreted. I, I was actually born in the hospital in Orkney. My dad um, suffered with manic depression um, throughout his life, and it was kind of my, a few weeks early, actually, kind of 
triggered partly a, a manic episode and and so not only if if you're actually if someone's actually sectioned under the mental health act which he was there's no secure unit for them to go to in Orkney so it was actually on the day that I was born he was airlifted away from the island but um, you know as it was told to me the uh, the doctors and whatever thought it would be good for him to actually meet me before he was taken away so you know as it was told to me there was this incredibly sort of dramatic scene where my mum was in a wheelchair and just having given birth and my dad was also in a wheelchair and in a straight jacket and you know I was I was introduced to him just before he was taken away and I'd kind of always I'd sort of been told this in little bits and pieces by my parents over the years and but I have to admit that I've always kind of had this thinking that I might write about it you know and I actually told another writer friend that this is what happened on the first day of my life and he was like damn you're so lucky you know that you had that happen to you this uh, rather kind of um, cinematic kind of um, entry to the world and you know that's the prologue of the book and I think it kind of sets up a lot because it tells you you know about how how ill my dad was and about how much my mum was left to deal with and then also about the kind of unique aspects and problems of, of being on an island as well. So you've already mentioned you know being a teenager and wanting to get away when did that first become a possibility? <laughs> Well, I guess I, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I was into uh, magazines and music and fashion. And, uh, you know, there weren't, not many bands came to Walkney and there weren't many nightclubs. So, but it was when I went, I went off to university when I, when I was 18, you know, but like a lot of people, it was as much to move to the city as it was to study. I went off to Edinburgh University, which I I don't actually mention by name in the book. And then um, a few years later on to London. And so, as you said, you're in London for a decade. So... How did it go in the beginning? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, m- I moved to London to be a writer, but it kind of, there's a chapter in the book that actually comes just in between the time when I graduated and when I moved to London, that I actually went back to Orkney. I couldn't get a job and I, w- I ended up working as a cleaner on this small island called Flotta where there's an oil terminal so I was a cleaner in the cleaning the bedrooms of the oil workers just felt like going back to Orkney was was failure really and that um that kind of the world that mattered had kind of forgotten about me and this actually came at the same time as as my parents were, were getting divorced and it was quite an upsetting time and that was the kind of emotional place that I moved on to London kind of with a backpack and a, and a one-way ticket but I would say that you know the first few years I was in London was pretty exciting you know I got to go to all the the clubs that I'd read about in magazines and was doing some freelance writing as well as had some you know day jobs and sort of in uh, industry corporate journalism and writing but really the thing was was uh, you know to simplify my life extremely is um, I had a drink problem you know and and like these things go it's a it gets worse year by year month by month and that was kind of the the story of of how things happened for me and you know the drinking became increasingly solitary and all the things that began happening to me so losing jobs losing relationships getting in trouble you know with the law uh, you know some uh, violent kind of dangerous uh, situations that I found myself in yeah and um you know I, I realized it took me quite a long time to a realize that I had a problem and then quite some years later to realize that really the only way for me to deal with it was to stop drinking completely and you know I eventually admitted myself to a, a local authority um, treatment program so that was back in 2011 so just over five years ago now was actually when I had my last drink yeah but that was I mean that's quite 
recent so within the period of time when those sort of services for people in London are really being cut to the bone so what was that help like? Well I've felt incredibly lucky to be um you know it was a hundred percent council funded program that I attended full time for three months which allowed me to have the time and space to really oh you know attempt to break myself down and then build myself back up again in order to kind of become part of the world again and um yeah I mean but even I mean I think actually the in terms of um, funding for these types of programmes, the one that I was on that insists on 100% abstinence, they were kind of safer. But some of the programmes that do allow people to still be drinking or when they're on them, they, they were kind of a bit more under threat. But, you know, it's a fantastic service and really it functioned. You know, it, it really gave me that space to put sobriety first, you know, as a foundation for the rest of my life, you know. And you obviously, you know, you meet other people on that course. I mean, how successful are these treatments? Because there are people that you talk about that obviously go through relapses and problems again. Yeah, I mean, I didn't quite anticipate, actually, when I when I entered the treatment programme, you work very intensely with the other people in there. And it has an extremely high dropout rate. So I think there were 10 of us or something when we or 12 of us when I started the program and only two of us managed to stick with it for the three months you know it was like we got urine tested twice a week and if you if you drank or took drugs once you were out so it's incredibly tough because you had to go I was living out it wasn't residential so I was living at home so we were all kind of going back into the temptations of the real world every night and you know I think any kind of program for addicts has an extremely high failure rate that's just the that's just the stats but you know I think there are people like me who you know managed to get through it. and I you know I, my problems were not as complex and I had a lot of things going for me compared to some of the other people that I met in there as well. So how did you find yourself back on Orkney then? Yeah well some, sometimes people the way people have spoken about the book has been a bit of a misrepresentation because it wasn't like I went home to heal or reconnect with the islands it was much more practical than that it was I, I'd quit my job to go into rehab and then when I came out of rehab I was unemployed and I was kind of looking for work in London kind of with this hard hard to explain gap in my CV and, and not getting anywhere. And so I went back to Orkney to stay with my mum for what I thought would just be a few weeks until until I got a job back in London again. I left my stuff with a friend in London, you know, saying I'll be back in a few weeks. But actually, it ended up being three years because, um, yeah, I went back. Then I started um, helping my dad on the farm a bit, actually. He needed some help like with jobs such as um, rebuilding the, the dry stone walls or, or dikes, as we call them, and, and some help at lambing time. And, um, and I, I just wasn't getting anywhere with the work that I was applying for. But a real turning point came for me, and it was tough. The first year of sobriety was tough and lonely and, you know, I just thought, what have I, you know, if this is sober life, I I don't want it, you know, it's not much fun. But a sort of a turning point for me came just when I'd been sober for about a year and um, I saw this job in the local newspaper in Orkney, the job centre were putting a bit of pressure on me. It was for the RSPB, the, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, and it was this job as the corncrake officer. So the corncrake is an um, endangered bird, and every year they employ someone to locate all of these birds uh, in the islands. So uh, that's what I did. 
and I, I got the job and it was really uh, opened up a lot of new interest to me and importantly new things to write about as well. I'm going to come back to the corncrake counting when you were the, the corncrake wife <laughs> but um, tell us more about the Orkney Islands in general then so what are they like? Well they are pretty you know but uh, people live in their lives um, <laughs> and I think this is kind of what I was battling with in the book I both wanted to kind of show what was unique and beautiful about the place not to romanticize or, or idealize kind of kind of island life it's an agricultural place or sort of farming and, and tourism are, are the main industries um and there's the there's the main island or the mainland as we call it where, where most people live and then there are about 30 other islands with populations of between two and five hundred sort of scattered over these other islands it's a very there are barely any trees in Orkney so what you have is very wide open landscapes so a lot of sky a lot of sea which is always changing in in the light and the weather and and the seasons yeah it's a it's a windy old place particularly in the winter and um yeah often a very beautiful place as well with a with a really rich identity and and culture and you talk about the history of some of the islands in terms of the communities that live there and how often those communities have been moved. So the islands that used to be inhabited are often no longer. Yeah, there are quite a few of these um, kind of abandoned islands around Orkney, which used to have sometimes quite a sizable community on them. But now, uh, you know, you just kind of middle of 20th century depopulation and now ended up with everyone actually leaving in the end and now there are just some empty houses there there's one in particular that I visit and, and talk about in the book, which is Coppensey, which is actually now owned by the RSPB. It, it's a bird reserve. So I went out there and, and stayed for a night uh, with some seabird researchers. But there are also small islands with small communities that have managed to avoid depopulation. And in particular is Papua Estuary or Papi, where I ended up going and living for two winters. And, and that's where I wrote the book. So on Papi, so the, t- the top third of the island is actually a, an RSPB reserve and there's a little cottage there that's owned by the RSPB and in the summer the bird warden lives there in the cottage but in the winter it's normally empty but I, I realised that, that they had this little cottage that was empty in the winter and um, just got this notion and asked them if I could go and stay there which I did uh, you know, with the idea of, of writing a book really so not only did it sort of provide inspiration of things to write about it was also where I did the writing I'm Gavin Francis, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture there's a small community on Papa Westray. So what's life like for that community in general? Well, the population's about 70. And it kind of seems like around that number is about the minimum. It's sort of the critical mass needed to sustain things like a, a school. So there's a school with about six pupils and there's a shop that's open a few hours a week and there's a ferry service and there's also a daily plane service to the mainland. And it's a very strong, real community, you know, um, which I'd heard about before I got there. And it's I think maybe it's a little bit more of a cohesive community than perhaps some other islands of, of similar size. So there's lots of community events going on. People kind of know their neighbours and, you know, what's going going on with each other. 
and kind of all all different ages and, and backgrounds kind of mixed together much more than you would get in any other places and it's um really fascinating and I was really lucky to be welcomed there. Let's talk about the the corncrake counting and then this wasn't on Papa Westray this was well you describe it as back on the mainland but of course that means the main island it doesn't mean mainland Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere else is just south or south, you know, so it kind of your kind of center of gravity changes when you're when you're up north. Yeah. It was my job to locate every calling male corncrake in Orkney in the summer, which I did by firstly sort of appealing for public reports. So I put kind of signs up in cafes and notices on the radio station saying if you hear the call of the corncrake please call my corncrake hotline and let me know where it is and the other thing that I did to locate them corncrakes are nocturnal so uh, the survey was carried out between midnight and 3am and it was carried out over two months over crossing over the midsummer period um, which in Orkney is rather special because being that far north I was out for both the sunset and the sunrise. I mean, on the clearest nights, basically the sunset just changes into the sunrise. There's, there's not that much dark. And, and so I was locating them by ear. So what you are, you're listening out for the sound. And I did this in car. So I'd, I'd drive around and then I'd wind my windows down and listen for two minutes. And then most of the time, write down no corncrake here, drive on 500 meters, wind down the windows of my car, listen for two minutes, go no corncrake here and drive on and do that for three hours per night for a couple of months. So I, I was nocturnal like the birds. But it was really a kind of extraordinary experience in that I felt like I was the only person awake in Orkney. Often seeing these, you know, beautiful dawns. And while I was not hearing many corncrakes, what I was hearing and what was gradually becoming revealed to me was all the other sounds of the island at night. So all the other bird calls, the curlew and the oyster catcher and the sound of the sea and, um, you know, the sound of the wind and learning to identify different types of clouds and, and, and just sort of really learning the roads and learning the place where I come from in, in a deeper kind of way. And um, it, and it was irresistible to write about. Well, you've already mentioned that, I mean, people have interpreted this book as you go into Walkney basically to get better. But even though that's not necessarily the case, being there, obviously you went there, you were exposed to all of this nature, to the sort of wildness of the place. What did it do? I mean, I think it was, I was there at the same time as basically stopping drinking had created an absence in my life. And I felt like I'd, I'd saved my life, but I wasn't quite sure sure what I'd saved it for. But kind of things like beginning to learn about the birds or become more interested in, in the history of the islands, traveling to these uninhabited places. It was gradually these things, which I didn't perhaps think I was interested in, kind of came to excite me and learning about them and helped me to to fill up these absences and and find a new lifestyle really which wasn't wasn't the lifestyle that I thought that I wanted but I kind of had allowed myself the the space and the kind of sobriety to find out and you know something that became particularly important to me was um uh, swimming in the sea uh, which there's a, a chapter about in the book in which um you know is, is mentioned quite a lot and and how that kind of in a lot of a ways the sea swimming has come to function for me in quite a number of the same ways as, as drinking used to you know as kind of 
sort of a bit of a buzz, you know, the cold water high, and then often kind of for celebration of special occasions or a way to mark the changing seasons or no, so just kind of, I find it very effective kind of for stress relief and getting rid of anxiety and just kind of slowly being able to um, to find new ways of, of living, I suppose. Yeah. And let's talk about the the process of writing the book then. So you said that happened over one of the winters that you spent on Pape at Rose Cottage. As we said at the beginning, obviously you were writing for Caught by the River as well, sort of blogs and essays which which we've developed into the book. But how did the actual book come together? Yeah. So the first year I was back in Pape, I started writing these not on Pape, but just in Orkney, I started writing these um blogs for Caught by the River, which were they were much more focused on kind of the, you know, there was one about ambergris from sperm whales. There was one about working on the farm at lambing time. There's one about noctilucent clad. They're much more focused on the, the nature stuff. But all of them had kind of a, just a short mention, like one sentence, kind of about how I'd ended up back in Orkney and maybe a little bit about being in rehab or whatever. And I was really quite nervous when these went online. But I had such a, a warm response to them. It really kind of encouraged me to keep on writing. And I did have have uh so I've, I've written diaries my whole life but the other place that the book sort of grew from as well as the court by the river columns was that during the time i was in treatment in rehab i had kept a blog like a kind of secretish blog and that kind of gave the other side of my story to the nature columns and i kind of thought i'm gonna give it a go to see if i can combine these things and combine the different elements of my writing which might be on one hand my diaries and on the other hand my background as, as a journalist and try to combine these into a whole book and i was actually went to Papi for two winters so i I wrote the first draft the first winter I was there and then I went back for another winter and, and did a number of redrafts. And then finally, what does it mean that the book has now been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? What does that mean to you? I've really been taken aback and sort of delighted and, and relieved by the response that the book's had and particularly with the with the Welcome Prize shortlist. I think it's just maybe I feel that the book's been taken seriously you know it's not just this kind of biographical story about me and maybe some of the more sensational elements of my life it's kind of I feel like it's being taken considered for its more thoughtful or literary qualities and um, that means a great deal to me. So I've been talking to Amy Liptrot about her book The Outrun it's out now from Canongate Books so Amy thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.